Now, you recall in the Old Testament, if you've read the book of Joshua, which many of you have, that the children of Israel were doing battle with the different Canaanite tribes as they came into the Promised Land. They crossed the Jordan River. And in chapter 11, it tells us that the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all the other ites that were in the land, they came together and they came against God's people. Uh, they joined together to fight against the Israelites. And it's interesting, in chapter 11, verse 4 of the chapter tells us that as they came together, the armies numbered as many as the sand that were on the seashore in multitude and a very many horses and chariots. And in verse 5, they met together and they camped together. And so Jesus, in his final week before he goes to the cross, we see that the enemies of God are coming together. The enemies of Jesus are banding together. You see the same thing even today. There are those groups that won't have anything to do with each other, don't like each other, that are in opposition with each other. But when it comes to the cause against Christianity or the Bible or Jesus, they will come together for that common cause. I think we've even seen it this week. Some of you, many of you pointed out, you, you told me you read the reports that in the White House that they're having Bible studies and high you know, cabinet officials are involved in that Bible study. And there are those who are up in arms over that. Coming together, you can't do that. Uh, freedom from religion. And I'm thinking, really? I think the Constitution, I know the Constitution says there's a freedom of religion. So you have people that will do that, and it will probably increase as we get closer to the return of the Lord, that there are people, there are groups that will band together, come together to come against Christianity, the Bible, will come against you and I in, in the freedoms that we do have in this land, but they don't want us continuing to give that message of the gospel to others. And so here, as we see Jesus in his final week before he goes to the cross, the enemies of Jesus have come to him. They want to destroy him. They want to find a reason for him to be arrested and dealt with by the Romans. And you recall that in the previous chapter that Jesus, after he rode into Jerusalem, on the back of that donkey, down the Mount of Olives and into the city, the whole city being moved. They were waving the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David, the king of Israel, ascribing that term Messiah to him. And those religious leaders are very upset about that. And they're saying, you tell them to be quiet, the disciples, the crowds. And Jesus said, if they're silent, the very rocks are going to cry out. And we know that then the next day that Jesus would come to the temple and he's seeing all the, the things that are taking place. Uh, the, the priests that oversaw the, the exchange of money and also those who sold lambs and doves for the Passover sacrifices, how they were ripping the people off. And Jesus overturned those tables. He drove out those who sold those sacrifices, and then he would rebuke the religious leaders by saying, it is written that my house is a house of prayer for all the nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. So you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians, the leaders of Israel, have come together to come against Jesus. They are angry with him. And the chapter starts with the religious elite coming to him, as it tells us that he's at the temple proper, there's a multitude that is there. He is teaching them, and he is preaching the gospel to them, the good news. That's what the religious elite should have been doing. 
That's what the religious leaders of the land should have been doing. But they were only interested in ripping the people off and being seen of men and all their religiousness in this. And so they come to him, and in front of everybody, that multitude, they begin to challenge him. They said that, you know, by what authority do you do these things, riding into Jerusalem like that, cleansing the temple the way that you did? Uh, What authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? And we saw that Jesus asked them about the baptism of John. And then he would tell them a parable, the wicked vine dressers, speaking against those leaders of Israel that, that you know, have beaten and killed the prophets that have been sent to them over their history and how they rejected the owner of the vineyard son who was sent to them. Of course, speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, they killed the owner's son and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus knows what they're up to and that he is eventually, in just a couple days, going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and delivered to Pilate where he's going to be crucified on a cross. And Jesus at that time quoted from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus, of course, being the chief cornerstone. So they questioned his authority, as we saw. And then last week, here come the Herodians and the Pharisees. They come together and they begin to question his integrity. They come spying on him, pretending to be righteous. Uh, They say to Jesus as they come uh, being deceiving and and not deceiving Jesus, you can't deceive him. But you, teacher, or one that teach rightly, you don't show favoritism to anyone. You you teach the, the way of God in truth, which is true, but they're coming in this deceptive manner. And the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus trying to set up this trap uh, in trapping his words, asking him about a question about taxes. You see, those two groups never got together on anything. They did not like each other. They did not get along with each other. And the reason was is because the Herodians were those leaders that welcomed and supported the Roman occupation of Israel. The Pharisees, they hated the Roman occupation. The Herodians, they ruled over the people politically. The Pharisees, they were ruling over the people religiously. And these two groups were always fighting amongst themselves. But together they come with a common cause concerning Jesus, how they might kill Jesus. And they would come to him hoping to catch him in his words. They question him whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And what they were hoping to do was to trap him because if Jesus said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then the people would be confused. Remember in chapter 19 that they're expecting him, even at this point, to usher in the kingdom of God, to do away with Rome and overthrow the Roman yoke and and, and to usher in the kingdom, to restore the nation. And if he would say that, go ahead, pay uh, taxes to, uh, to Rome, then they would begin to leave. They would be upset. And then the religious leaders who feared the people, who wanted to get their hands on him, would be able to do that without you know, the people interfering. Now, if Jesus, on the other hand, and Luke gives us indication, this is what really they hope is happening. If Jesus says, don't pay taxes to those dreaded Romans, you know, don't do it at all. Then the Herodians, who were the political leaders who had an audience with Pilate and the Romans, would go there to Pilate and say, hey, that guy that came in a couple days ago on Palm Sunday... And he rode in, and the whole city was moved and and crying out to him as their Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And, And he's down there now at the temple 
teaching a large crowd. He's telling the people not to pay their taxes, not to give tribute to Caesar. And Rome didn't put up with that. That's one thing that Rome did is they would squash any kind of rebellion against them, insurrection against them, uh, telling people not to give tribute to Caesar or whatever. So that's what they were hoping. So the Pharisees and the Herodians thought, we got Jesus trapped. Because whatever he answers, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not to Caesar? And they weren't counting on him having a third answer. And Jesus would amaze the people, as Dr. Luke tells us, by taking a, a Daenerys, the tax money. Whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. And give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and then give to God the things that are God's. And we know that the people marveled at his answer. So they came, these religious leaders, banding together, coming against Jesus, trying to trap him and trick him and have him be arrested. They questioned his authority. They questioned his integrity. And now here comes the Sadducees, and they questioned his theology. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him. So up to this point, we've mostly talked about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us, there are about 6,000 of them in the land, Josephus himself being a Pharisee. They had great loyalty to the scriptures, as we've discussed. They desired to live strictly by the law, what the scribes, the lawyers, had interpreted the law to be, particularly when it came to keeping of the Sabbath. And they, they were ones that they developed this very rigid religious system of rules and regulations that became a terrible burden on the people. They would view themselves as being superior to everybody else. Most of them were actually merchants and tradesmen, as is what historians tell us. And it would include the Pharisees, a few priests in their ranks. But they ended up being really the main enemies of Jesus, as we have seen. We know that their main beef with him is that he would heal on the Sabbath. We saw that in Luke chapter 6. Remember the man with the withered hand there in the synagogue in Capernaum? And they set him up to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. And matter of fact, it tells us in the gospel narratives that after Jesus healed that man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day in a synagogue, that they were determined to put him to death. We know in chapter 13, the woman there in the synagogue, um, the spirit of infirmity that was healed, uh, had that spirit of infirmity for 18 years. In chapter 14, on the Sabbath, the man with dropsy, and Jesus would turn to those religious leaders and say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they didn't answer him. And he said, which one of you guys, that if you had an ox or a donkey that fell into a pit, that you wouldn't get him out of that pit? Here this man has a disease. He is dying. I'm here to help and restore. And he healed that man. We know that in John's Gospel, chapter 5, that in Jerusalem, earlier than this time here that we're reading about, that Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the feasts, and there was a man that had this infirmity for 38 years. He could not walk, and we know that it was Jesus that brought healing to him and told him, rise up and pick up your bed and walk, and he did. It was on the Sabbath day, and all the religious leaders could do is say, who told you you can carry your bed on the Sabbath day? And they didn't care about that he had been man that had been by that pool for 38 years. A man that was sick and diseased and, and needed help. So they were really angry at Jesus concerning 
the healing on a Sabbath day, and other things, of course. Now, the Herodians that had come with the Pharisees, as I mentioned, they were more of a political party than a religious sect. It is believed that many of the Jews who collected taxes were Herodians. That's why I believe that you see them with the Pharisees asking Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were loyal supporters of Herod's family and of Rome. Now, in the beginning of the chapter, when they begin to come against Jesus on this day, we read that it was the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests being high-ranking priests. Many of them were Sadducees, the scribes who interpret the scriptures. They, many of them became Pharisees. The elders were the men from the leading families in Judaism, tracing their roots back to Ezra day. Ezra was a descendant of the last high priest in the first temple period. Uh, before uh, that Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 B.C. and destroyed Solomon's temple. And the Jews, the house of Judah, would go off into captivity for 70 years. So there's going to be a quiz on all of this when I get done. And I'm not trying to relay and give you this information to bore you with some history, but here's the thing. You can kind of see all the different groups that were there and all these groups coming together to come against Jesus. And now here comes the Sadducees. It is the first time, it is the only time, that they are mentioned in Luke's gospel. Matthew records that oftentimes they would join in with the Pharisees in coming against Jesus. Now, the Sadducees were less in number than the Pharisees, but generally they were more powerful and were wealthy. They were in places of political authority. They included many of the high-ranking priests, probably Caiaphas and Annas, were Sadducees. And because they had so much prestige and power and wealth, to lose, they were far more cooperative with Rome than the Pharisees were. Matter of fact, I think we see that in John's gospel. You remember in John chapter 11, as most of you know the story, that Jesus came to the town of Mary, to Bethany, and there was Lazarus. He was in the tomb, had been there for four days. And Jesus declares that I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Kind of interesting that the Pharisees uh, or the Sadducees coming to Jesus are going to ask him a question about the resurrection. But Jesus, as he would tell Lazarus, come forth, that many believed and they marveled. It was only a couple miles from Jerusalem. And then word gets back to the religious leaders about Lazarus who came forth from the grave. And, and then as we read in chapter 11, that we see that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and listen, take away both our place and the nation. They were more concerned about their position, their authority. The Romans will come and take away our place. It'll be bad news for us. They cared more about that and being seen of men and, and being exalted before the people in their position rather than opening up their eyes spiritually to see who Jesus really was, their Messiah that was to come. So the Sadducees, they refused to accept the oral law developed by the scribes and Pharisees. They limited the full authority of Scripture to the first five books of Moses. That's Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection, as we see that Luke tells us here, or the coming Messiah. They were nihilists. In other words, once you die, that's it. You cease to exist. And they really didn't believe in much of anything. 
And here they come to Jesus, and they ask this question about the resurrection. And what they're hoping to do is not only to defeat Jesus, but also to make the Pharisees look bad who believed in the resurrection. They're kind of hoping to kill two birds with one stone. So let's see the the question as they pose to Jesus as we continue reading uh, there in verse 28. They say, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man brothers dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and he took first took a wife and died without children. And the second, verse 30 tells us, took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, by the way, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. So they come to Jesus, again being deceptive. Teacher, the law of Moses says, the part of the Old Testament we do believe, That if a man marries and dies and leaves no offspring, then she is to marry his brother or the nearest kin, is what Deuteronomy chapter 25 says. That that one becomes the kinsman redeemer. And the reason was so that the dead man's name would continue on. His legal line would continue to give an inheritance to. uh, It was very important in ancient Israel that that took place. So the Sadducees put together this this scenario based on what is prescribed there in the book of Deuteronomy that, you know, a husband uh, uh, is married to a wife and he dies and has no children, so she marries the next brother and all the way down through seven brothers. And the husband, you know, his name was to uh, continue on. The husband's brother took her as wife to perpetuate the dead brother's name. So what we see kind of this Deuteronomy chapter 25 actually being um, played out uh, in the Old Testament book of what? Of Ruth. Remember the book of Ruth, a beautiful story there that Naomi and her husband and two sons, they left Bethlehem. They would go over to the east side of the Dead Sea to Moab uh, because there was famine. And Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die who have gotten married to uh, women of Moab. And one of them was named Ruth. And she comes back with Naomi. And she ends up meeting Boaz, who ended up becoming the kinsman redeemer. Again, we don't have time to go into it all this morning. But it's a beautiful story and a picture how Jesus Christ, he is our kinsman redeemer, that he has taken a bride that is us, the church, to himself. And we know that Ruth and Boaz, that they would have a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. She ended up becoming the great-grandmother of David. So that Deuteronomy chapter 25 is, is given there in the book of Ruth, and we see it played out. So the Sadducees come up with this really unrealistic, ridiculous case of one wife that would be given to these seven brothers. And the Sadducees were trying to make the resurrection seem very confusing. It only creates all kinds of problems to make the resurrection seem ridiculous. And you know that goes on even today. There are Sadducees today that they'll hold on to some of the Bible, but not concerning immorality when it comes to pursuing righteousness and holiness. When it comes to judgment and sin or a call to repentance or salvation by Christ alone. 
Oh, there's plenty of religious people who will quote certain parts of the Bible, but they don't want to take the Bible as a whole. They'll say, oh, I believe in the Sermon of the Mount, or I believe those verses that said that we should esteem others better than ourselves, but they will dismiss so much of the scriptures. And there are those who will even come along and mock the resurrection and claim to be religious. So the Sadducees, they are doing that. They are hoping to put down the Pharisees to embarrass them, to mock the resurrection, and to defeat Jesus. Now remember that Jesus has talked about the resurrection, hasn't he? Chapter 9, chapter 14, chapter 18 of Luke's gospel. Jesus has mentioned the resurrection. He's spoken clearly to his disciples about his own resurrection, that what's going to happen, that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and they're going to put me to death, but after three days I'm going to rise again. But it was hidden from them. They didn't understand at this time. And you might recall even in chapter 16 that Jesus told that story of Lazarus and the rich man. They, they both died. There is an afterlife, which the Sadducees didn't believe in. There's that Hades, two compartments. There's a place of torment that the rich man went to, a chasm uh, that is there. And then on the other side of that chasm, that deep canyon, was Abraham's bosom. And you recall that it was the rich man looking over, could see Abraham and could see Lazarus. And he yells over, he says, hey, can you send Lazarus to go warn my brothers about this place of torment? And Abraham answered and said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And I find that very interesting. Because in Matthew's gospel, on that first resurrection morning, when Jesus rose from the grave, that we see that Matthew account gives us some unique information there. And what it tells us is that when on that early in the morning, what happened was there was uh, an earthquake. The Romans were there. The guard was set. Uh, it was by the request of the religious leaders, the pilot, we want to put a seal over the, the stone that sealed the tomb. We want guards that are set so the disciples don't come along and steal the body of Jesus. So on the first day of the week, very early, there's an earthquake. And there's an angel, a mighty angel, countenance like lightning, Matthew writes, his clothing white as snow. And those fighting men of Rome, they were like dead men. They were so scared. They were so freaked out that they, they couldn't move. And then all of a sudden they ran. And it tells us there in Matthew's gospel that they ran to the priests, many of them being Sadducees. And they said, hey, you know what? We're there at the tomb guarding it. And all of a sudden this angel showed up, this mighty angel, which you don't believe in, and rolled away the stone. And Jesus rose. He's not there. He resurrected, which you don't believe in the resurrection. And what did the priests, what did the Sadducees say? They said, listen. We take this money. We're going to pay off Pilate. We're going to appease him. We'll take care of you. And if anybody asks, you know, tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. So even if one rises from the dead, they will not believe. You go to the book of Acts in the early church in Acts chapter 4. We see that the Sadducees actually become the main enemies of the Christians. Uh, they persecuted the apostles because they preached the resurrection, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And there was 
you know, circulation of, of reports that there were angels that were seen at the tomb and things like that. They didn't like that. Now, what is interesting when you do read the book of Acts, that some of the Pharisees actually became believers. Did you know that? You read Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council when James and Peter and, and, and Paul and the apostles get together. They're trying to settle that question. What do we tell these Gentile believers? That they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? The Pharisees were there, some of them, that became believers. They were still legalistic. They were saying, yes, they must be circumcised and they must keep the law of Moses. So it's an interesting chapter but we don't hear of any Sadducees that came to Christ after his resurrection. So here they come to Jesus. They say Moses writes. They're hoping to use Moses to disprove the resurrection. So this scenario, scenario this, this poor woman had these seven husbands that were brothers, and they all ended up dying. And in the resurrection, there's, there's no children that were produced. Whose wife will she be? For all seven had her, they asked. And it's kind of like, trying to create the scenario that they're all up in heaven, uh, you know, arguing the brothers, she's my wife, she's my wife, she's mine, or she's trying to pick, hmm, who do I have as husband? And, and I just wonder what was the look on Jesus' face when they asked that question. Kind of like, really, guys? You know, and he answered them. And as we read the answer here in verse 34, he said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, there is a resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In verse 37, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead was raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Now, as we consider Jesus' answer here in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, both places, they record this story, this conversation, this question the Sadducees bring to Jesus. And in Matthew and Mark, Jesus would preface his answer by saying, you guys are mistaken. You do err. And number one, you don't know the scriptures. And secondly, you don't know the power of God. And that is a problem that happens today, isn't it? There are those who do not adhere to the inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy of scripture. So they come up with their own theology. They come up with their own opinions, and they will deny the resurrection. They will deny the atoning work of Jesus. They will deny the coming of the Lord. They will deny salvation and faith in Jesus alone. They will deny biblical marriage and the sanctity of life because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And that's why it's important for us to go through this series, I believe, on Wednesday nights, standing firm in these last days because Paul would write to Timothy in the last days that evil imposters are going to grow worse and worse, given to deception making their way into our homes, and we see it even today. And so we need to be standing firm in the Word of God. We need to be standing firm in the things of God and trusting in Him and standing on His promises. And if you don't stand fast in the Word of God, you're going to receive mixed messages, you're going to give ears to deceiving words, and you're going to be confused, and you're going to get ripped off. 
and you're going to be lied to, and you're going to be deceived. So Jesus answering them says, you know, to them, you don't know Scripture. You don't know the power of God. Here Luke picks it up, and he says, Jesus in verse 35, those who are counted worthy to obtain that age. Verse 34, in this age, we're given to marriage. In that age, in eternity, that you're not given to marriage in heaven. We know to be counted worthy is by faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to be clear of that. We cannot be worthy in our own efforts, in our own religiousness. We are worthy because we come to faith in Jesus Christ, admitting that we are a sinner, asking for forgiveness, surrendering our lives to him, coming in faith and believing that he's the son of God who died for you and he rose from the grave three days later. And that's why it is Peter that says, we have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those who call on the name of the Lord, Paul would write, shall be saved. So that's what makes us worthy. And in the resurrection from the dead, right away he refused to believe the Sadducees that there was no resurrection. He says there is. But in that age, in eternity, there's no marriage, nor will you be given to marriage in heaven. Now, I know that none of you that are married would dare say this, that you would say, praise God for that. But I think that mostly what I hear in people that read this that if they've been married for a long time, or even sometimes when you're young and you just get married, that couples will say, really? That really bums me out. That bums me out that we won't be married in heaven. And I just want to say this, and I want to encourage you, that in heaven, the relationships that we have with one another, even though we won't be married in heaven or given to marriage, is going to be more perfect, is going to be more glorious, is going to be better than any relationship that we can have here on earth, even though they are very special. When you come into that covenant of marriage, becoming one with one another. So you won't have to worry about that. We will know one another as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 declares, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Our relationships with one another is going to be so wonderful. Plus what Jesus says here, if you ever talk to your Mormon friends or co-workers or whatever and you start talking about the scriptures, you see the Mormons believe that when they get married, they'll go into one of their temples. They just built one here in Fort Collins. And that couple will be sealed for all eternity. And why they do that is because they believe that as a couple, when they die, they will be given to marriage in heaven. They will progress in heaven, that they can become gods themselves, and then they will have spirit children and be able to populate a world. That's their belief. That's why they do that. You can show them this scripture which refutes their doctrine that says, in that age, in eternity, we're not given to marriage. There is no marriage in heaven. So Jesus is making it very clear. In verse 36, we will not die anymore in eternity. In your new resurrected body, and we don't have time to explain it completely, to be absent from the body when we take our last breath is to be present with the Lord. But the day is going to come when our bodies are going to be resurrected and we're going to have new heavenly bodies. Read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. No more sickness, no more cancer, no more heart disease, no more suffering, no more tears. You won't be given to death. You will live for eternity in that new heavenly celestial body. This is just an opinion to, to make it clear. 
uh, don't make theology out of this, but I believe in heaven we're all going to be about 30 years of age. I think that's a good age. And the reason I kind of have that opinion of mine, and I could be wrong, because what is time in heaven in eternity? But David, he started to be king when he was, what, 30 years of age. The priests would start their ministry at what age? 30 years of age. And Jesus started his ministry at 30 years of age. So I think we're all going to be 30 years of age when we get into eternity. So that's just an opinion. But verse 36 goes on and says that we will be equal with the angel. Mark Mark records that we will be like the angels. We are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Heaven is eternal. Okay? We're not given to marriage. And when he says we will be like the angels or equal with them, he, he doesn't say we will be angels. Jesus is saying we'll be like the angels, equal with them, in that we're not going to die. We're not given to marriage. There's going to be no childbearing. We will be actually, the scripture teaches, have a higher status than the angels. Because angels, we are told, are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. Angels were not created in the image and likeness of God. But you are. And you are. And we who are believers will be resurrected as sons and daughters of the living God. I love what 1 John chapter 3 declares to us. Many of you, you know these verses. That behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know when, uh, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then Jesus continues to bring correction to these guys in verses 37 and 38. They quoted Moses to him. He quotes Moses to them. Think back, you Sadducees. Think back to Exodus chapter 3 when God revealed himself to Moses. He said that I I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God did not say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are dead, and there's no resurrection, so I was the God. No, God didn't say that. I am the God presently. And Jesus goes on to say that he is the God of the living for all who live to him. And when the scribes heard it, they said, you have spoken well. Good. You silenced those Sadducees. You've wrecked them. We like that. Matter of fact, one of the scribes that Matthew Mark records at this time would come to Jesus and then ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus would say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's just like it. The great Shema that is given in the book of Deuteronomy there. And so the scribes were happy how it answered. But it goes on to say that the people marveled at his answer. We're going to see that after this exchange here with the religious leaders, Mark tells us that the common people heard him gladly. We also know that after this point, the religious leaders dare not try to ask him any more questions. He answered their questions perfectly. So Matthew recording all of this and Mark and and Luke. And we know that the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he took them to the truth of God's word, to Scripture. And I want to encourage you, you can do the same. 
You keep studying the scriptures. Keep coming and learning. Have your devotions. Know the word of God, and you'll be able to minister to others. And there will be those that will come along and try to entangle you in your words and speech and confuse you. You take them to God's word, and you give them godly wisdom and godly truth. And you'll be able to minister in a very effective way. Listen, you know who's going to be those who are going to be able to minister in a powerful way in the days in which we're living in? Those who are grounded in God's word. And those who believe in the scriptures and believe in the power of God to change a life. And not only are you giving them truth, but you give them hope. The hope of the gospel. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ as we put our faith and trust in him. Knowing that he rose from the grave, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Now we have the promise of that resurrection as well. To be with him for all eternity. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this this, this time that we've had in this story, this exchange here that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and then Luke as we saw. But Lord, I thank you that we have a living hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus conquered sin and death. And I pray that everyone's here. I know that a vast majority of people here, that you're believers, but if there is anyone that happens to be in this building or listening live stream, or on the radio later, or maybe listening to a teaching later, that if you're not a believer, that you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, he is your hope. He is the source of forgiveness because he went to the cross and died for you, the perfect Lamb of God. And he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. He proved that he's the Son of God. And the Bible says we're all lost because we have sinned. None of us have lived a perfect life. Only Jesus did. And that's why Jesus came to die for your sins, because the wages of sin is death. And to know that as you call upon him and believe in him, that you will be saved, asking for forgiveness, asking him to be your personal Lord and Savior. He is your salvation. There is none other. And if that's you here this morning, before we come to the communion table, you see the communion table is for the believer who holds the elements as we remember that he allowed his body to be broken and bloodshed for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This new covenant that we belong to, a covenant of sacrifice and love, Jesus' death on the cross that brings salvation. If you've never surrendered your life to him, Come in faith. Call upon him. You can't earn your way to heaven. A church can't save you. Coming to a Bible study doesn't save you. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. You can do that right now by praying, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. And I believe you died for me on that cross and you rose again and that you're alive. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart and my life. And I want to serve you all the days of my life. Thank you for this new beginning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, anybody, that if you're here, will you come up front and Pastor John, tell them the decision you made or come talk to me after the service. If you're listening on live stream or on the radio, call the church. Let us know the decision you made. We want to encourage you and bless you and support you in however way we can. 
But now as we come to the communion table, that I pray that we Christians, that we be in an attitude of worship and just holding the communion elements, being at awe of what Jesus did for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.